1: Hello and welcome to The Bunker, the new podcast about politics from the makers of Romaniacs. I'm Andrew Harrison and this week, turn another page on the old age rampage, baby boomers. They are, by some measures, the most privileged, comfortable and well-looked-after British people in history and yet they're still not happy. What will it take for our politics to shake off the grip of the grey? Rancorous populism continues to divide British and American voters. How much of it is Vladimir Putin's doing? And has the OG of the FSB arranged a succession that will keep him ahead of the West for another generation? And is it enough to boot poisonous personalities like Katie Hopkins off social media? Or by striking them down, do we only make them stronger? All that and more coming up on The Bunker. We were really delighted with the response to our first edition last week. We got about 20,000 listens, which was beyond our wildest dreams. And only a few people complained about the Telegraph advert at the start, telling you how great Brexit is going to be. (laughs) We also got some fantastic ideas about what you think we should cover on future podcasts. So please do follow us on Twitter at Bunker underscore pod or on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Bunker Podcast. Tell us what we're doing right and wrong and keep up with the show. Joining us today is one of our Pastromaniacs guests who is going to do her best not to mention the B word today. Helen Lewis writes for The Atlantic, where she attempts to explain our confused country to our colonial cousins. She's a regular host of The Week in Westminster and the News Quiz on Radio 4. She's got a book out this month, Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in 11 Fights. Hello, Helen. Welcome to The Bonker. Hello. How are you doing?
0: (laughs) I'm all right. Actually, trying to explain confused stuff to Americans is great, but um, trying to understand the Iowa caucuses... And it seems to involve a lot of elderly Americans running around gyms, yeah. which is extraordinary. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking a lot the other way as and well. And they can't
1: actually make it work either. Everything's no, crashed. They've
0: decided to put it on an app, and in the best tradition of not semi-government, I mean not you know party political IT projects, it was an absolutely hopeless disaster. Are
1: they going to have to turn Iowa off and on again in order to get the primary sorted? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I I mean it's and it, it, it will inevitably affect the way that it's covered because both Pete Buttigieg uh and Bernie Sanders have released polling data saying essentially they were ahead so already the conspiracies theories have started about actually you know if there there will be discrepancy between those results and the actual results right so everyone yeah. will kind of do the style like ah, oh, mm, who's been at the hanging chads mm.
1: oh I remember hanging chads know, that's taking me really back um so the book <laughs> Did you choose the women in the book specifically for their fightiness? Whose combativeness surprised you?
0: Uh, yes, I did choose them specifically about their fightiness because I wanted to really... like Every book should be about a couple of different things and one of them uh, that this is about is about how you actually change things. Like Feminism has been an incredibly successful political movement. You go from 150 years ago, women can't own property, they can't vote, rape in marriage is legal, all of these things. You know, domestic violence is not taken seriously. And we've made all of these gains in, in the ha- past 150 years. What do you need to do? Like, What are the necessary conditions for that to happen? What do you need personally? What do you need organisationally? So, yeah, that's why I wanted to look at it through that lens.
1: Books are often, uh, you know, the real book is the discoveries I made along the way. I mean, you're deep (laughs) into this stuff, but things you must have come across stuff that's spun your head somewhat.
0: There's some absolutely extraordinary um, things there. There was a French princess called Marie Bonaparte who had her clitoris moved three times. Yeah, okay. An attempt to that's sure, uh, yeah.
1: twice is understandable three times
2: as con- <laughs> careless excessive. surely <laughs>
0: um that's the kind of stuff when you read it and you just kind of go right okay I mean that's I mean you you saw a problem and you took decisive action uh, it, unfortunately it didn't it didn't work Oh,
1: god I, I did see that you discovered that uh, Mary Stopes sent her poetry to Hitler
0: she did with a covering note saying love is the greatest thing in the world. She's
1: going to get cancelled now, isn't
0: she? I I mean Mary Stopes, uh, you know, as far as anyone deserves to be cancelled, Mary Stopes does. She was incredibly dictatorial, dominant. Basically, she ended up making her reputation through a huge libel action that she took against some people, which she took because some other people looked like they were going to take a libel action. She wanted if there was going to be a sort of martyr for the contraceptive cause, she was damn determined it was going to be her.
1: Your homework is to think about Mary Stopes on Twitter what she would be like if she was doing that.
0: I mean, the closest analog I would have said would be probably Katie Hopkins which we can come to later I Ooh. mean she you know, this is the thing, is that the population control movement, as it framed itself in the early 20th century, is tied in with the birth control movement. So, after the First World War, all these millions of men have died at the front, and there is a big worry about, like, where are the babies going to come from, and who are the people who are having the babies? Are the right kind of people having the babies? So there's this huge pressure on on women to, you know, get back out of the workforce, and and kind of re-up the population, right? At the same time, you're getting all these currents coming through about the fact that there's terrible overcrowding and housing and slums. One of the letters to Mary Stopes I put in the book is a woman who's 37, so a year older than me. She's had 14 children, nine of them still alive. And then she's got a prolapse uterus and she wants to not have any more children because the doctors say it's going to kill her, but her doctor won't tell her how to stop that happening. I, that, that is the thing. The cult, the, the, to understand the rise of eugenics and those population movements, you have to understand the desperate circumstances that people were in and why paternalistic people thought we need to you know, benevolently do something to help these people and where that got twisted.
1: This is where I need to leap in and do my Alan Partridge keep it light moments. We've got a prolapse uterus already and we're not even ten minutes into the show. (laughs) Returning from his star turn in episode one is Ian Dunn's editor of politics.co.uk and exasperated man on the telly. Hello Ian and happy birthday. Oh thank you very much. That's very kind
0: of you. Glowing with
1: happiness. So you're writing a book called How to Be a Liberal but Mm. sucks for you Ian because the Telegraph leader (laughs) writer Tim Stanley has announced that the (laughs) post-liberal moment is here. His hook was Danny Kruger's maiden speech as MP uh, that Brexit is a response to the call of home, the attachment of people to the Places that are theirs, lots of Christianity and identity and community. What did you make of that? Then you're in the book at the There's wrong time. There's quite
3: a lot of this about. Um, so Daniel Kanziński, who was uh, who's a Tory MP, has been is planning on going to a conference with which is featuring Viktor Orban, which is featuring Marine Le Pen, uh, Matteo Salvini, basically all of your favourite Justice League of European fascists. will be seeing, <laughs> uh, including the best superhero Kanzinsky. team ever. Yes. Um, yes, indeed. And then Tim Montgomery, previously seen as this sort of quite. Um, sort of socially conscious voice of conservatism and at least until Brexit came along has now been saying well you know Victor Orban's got some terribly good ideas about how we we may go somewhere else with liberalism it's not like there's a concerted effort especially not in government at the moment in order to force this stuff in it's just that certain people on the right are seeing the opportunity of the moment now of, of basically having the winning side on a culture war to try and push that conversation the speech that Tim Stanley is referring to is not a particularly difficult speech. I mean, it's, it's a yeah. perfectly fine speech. What's interesting is the spin he's putting on it. And the questions that you then have to ask. I mean, if the guy says, you know, oh, it's about people's association with their place, you think what about the people in that place who don't feel an association with that place? Do they get banned from your sense of, you know, how the group should operate, of your idea of what it is to be British? And what about the people from another place who came into your place? Do they suddenly get excluded from your political thing? And these are the questions that liberalism, by the way, has been pretty fucking good at answering for the uh, last Two hundred right. years, and that we may want to pay a little bit more attention to. Okay, go liberals. Completing the
1: panel today and raising the tone considerably, I might, I might say, is former <laughs> diplomat and Foreign and Commonwealth Office mover and shaker Arthur Snell. Arthur has been the UK's High Commissioner to Trinidad and, T- and Tobago. He's been stationed in Iraq, Afghanistan, Zimbabwe, and Yemen. He's headed up the Foreign Office Prevent and the Anti radicalization Program, and his current business partner, Christopher Steele, had an interesting few months putting together a dossier about Donald Trump's Russian activities. Wonder what happened there. Not much, kind of bit of a story. Up there. Hello Arthur, Hello. welcome to the bunker, you are basically our Rory Stewart bringing much needed international perspective. You used to run Prevent and we've just had the terror attacks in Streatham where thankfully injuries were low and the response was swift. The government response has been to promise to end early release across the board. Does that make sense?
2: No, it doesn't, Um, because obviously you could keep people in a bit longer, but there are still people who've got to come out of jail at some point. And obviously, the real challenge is making sure that jail is some kind of rehabilitation experience for people.
1: As a a former Prevent person in charge, do you feel that you know that kind of serious rehabilitation is taking place, or is even on the radar? Because we seem to see that prison is used as a kind of storage facility, and then when people are, are released early under policies set by this government apparently this is a disaster and shouldn't have been allowed to happen.
2: Yeah well I think you know it's very clear that there's huge amounts of prison overcrowding at the moment but more so you know specific reporting about lots of radicalization in prisons apparently the, the guy who was involved in the Streatham attack you know he had material inside prison that was sort of very um, extremist material and that sort of thing so I think the idea that just having more people in prison will be a way of making us all safer is clearly nonsense.
1: Well how do you- Get that across to uh, a an electorate which is currently very much swinging in the direction of you know punishment works rehabilitation is
2: almost seen as a some form of reward. I mean, I think you know clearly what happened in Stratton was was ghastly. Now the person's not alive, so it, it doesn't. It's not an issue there. People do need to be punished if they commit terrible crimes, but. I think most people, in the end, care about what works. And if we keep having terrorist attacks in this country, we're going to start wanting to know what works, not what feels good. Prevent came in for for quite a lot of criticism. Um,
1: People said it's unjustly targeted Muslims for being Muslim. Can you see anything in that criticism? Do you... T- yeah. Tell me what, what, what how, as a former yes, editor.
2: yeah. I mean, I think I think it's a justified criticism, and I also think that the brand of prevent is very tarnished, and arguably, you know, it doesn't need to sort of persist because ultimately, what this is about is trying to prevent a person being dragged into some kind of extremist violent activity, and to be fair. In the early days, it was very focused on Muslims. But my understanding is now that there's a lot of sort of focus on the far right extremism as well. Mm.
1: Yeah. And and, and the, the context that produces these people is the same. It is disconnection, pointlessness, and also the awful cocktail of
2: young men being awful to one another. Absolutely, yeah. And and my own experience um, working in Iraq, I, I dealt a lot with uh, jihadists who'd been captured by coalition troops. And what you found was, yes, they're all young men. They were all people who lacked direction in their lives, who were probably, prior to coming to Iraq to join the insurgency, had never felt in any way sort of valued or, or had any sort of issues of self-esteem. And the one thing none of them were interested in was Islam. You could ask them about their opinion on on religion, they knew nothing about it. So I think this idea that we get focused on people's ideology is is pointless. It's basically it's mental health, and it's it's fo- allowing young people, particularly young men, to feel that they they have some value in society.
1: A friend of mine has prosecuted a few of these guys of uh, the past few years, and she said, um, "What you've got to remember is that uh, Four Lions is more of a documentary than you think."
2: Yes, indeed, a very good film. If you haven't seen it, go watch it.
1: OK, boomers. Let's talk about the chasm between the generations that's shaping politics in the West. Baby boomers, those born between the end of the war in 1964, are in charge. And despite being healthier and more secure than any previous generation, they don't seem especially happy about it. In fact, they're leading a charge into the nativist isolationist past. 57% of over 60s voted Conservative in 2019. The Labour-Conservative crossover happens at 39. That's when you start voting Conservative. And two-thirds of over 65s voted for Brexit. Sorry, I had to say the B word there. Increasingly, government policy from housing to health to pensions is built around catering to a client electorate who don't want horrible new houses near their town, but don't want their kids living in the box room either. They want open-ended health care, but not the immigrant staff required to facilitate those services. And they insist on rising pensions while benefits for the younger are frozen, all justified by the magic words, I've worked all my life. Spoiler, I know 28-year-olds who worked all their lives. They just didn't get that head start. So, Helen, you wrote a massive piece for The Atlantic last year on the boomers' outsized influence on politics. And you spoke to David Two Brains Willetts talking about boomers you know, taking over their children's future. To what extent is that a generational theft or an appropriation, do you think?
0: I think it's really important to say that there are two halves of it and one half you can't blame the boomers for which is that they they did everything right. They did what they were kind of told to do. They got in jobs, they bought houses, they settled down, you know, all of that stuff. They were just very lucky in the sense that they were a big generation. This is the thing that's interesting about them is they, you know, that's why they're called the baby boomers, right? Mm. It was a post-war baby boom. And so they sort of warped politics around them and they had the good fortune to buy houses when they, you know they were a couple of multiples of salary and watch them now to be you know 15 times an annual salary. The thing that you, is less forgivable is the fact that they have then dug their heels in and refused to see what you know what Willits talks about as a kind of contract between the generations, the idea that you want to pass something on to your kids, you want their lives to be better than, than yours were. And as you say, there are lots of people whose kids are in the spare room and don't want building on the edge of their, their village and they can't quite reconcile the fact that you're going to have to have more houses <laughs> yeah. if you want your children to move out. Um, the thing that's fascinating to me about writing about this, and, and and David said to me when I spoke to him for the piece, that it's not the millennials who have been sort of shafted who are the, the angry ones, right? It's the defensive boomers who get very, very angry. He said he got loads of letters after writing The Pinch in 2010 in furious letters in neat copper paint handwriting on and Bond. Yeah. And he was completely right. The that I got, and some of them were really, really quite. I had to refer one of them up to our company security. It was so aggressive. Wow. Um, were it's like from like
1: old guys going to come and beat you up for saying bit, that he shouldn't have his. Just house.
0: people, just yeah, I'm just using unacceptable language, shall we say, um, were from the the boomers. And there is what this is what fascinates me about this subject is psychologically what's mm-hmm. driving the, the absolute intense anger of a generation that from the outside looks like they had a brilliant life. You know, my my parents Mm. have been and they said they they're born in forty five, so they can still remember rationing, they can still remember not having an inside toilet. And actually all, all the way along their living standards have got better and they retired at the right time to, you know, still have decent pensions, private pensions, as well as the state pension, which you know, they paid into when they were not earning very much, but the, the, those opportunities will not be available to the generation below them. Why is that generation so angry, even as they yeah. get on their flight to Tenerife for a bit of winter sun? My,
1: my own parents are like this. They can't understand why their friends are so... They've they described to their mates how, like, if we'd been told that life would be like this when we were ten, we would have thought it was science fiction. <laughs> we are so fortunate. <laughs> and everybody's in a rage at all What? Why do you think it's... I mean, this appears to be the first generation that appears to have made the decision that it doesn't particularly want its kids to be better off than it was. Every previous generation...
0: Well, that's... I've thought a lot about this, and one of the things that I've come to is I think they do think their kids are better off. I think they don't see the, the houses and things like that, the markers of stability as being the things. They see their kids with disposable income, right? They see their kids going to the cinema, going for meals out, eating the fabled avocado brunch. Only I, mean, I don't know it was like when you, you were growing up. My parents would have eaten out once or twice a year, maybe.
1: My, my parents considered it to be a form of sin, I
3: believe. <laughs> it, why? You can cook that.
0: So I think that's the thing, is that they, they see that what they see is their, the lifestyles of their children yeah. being much much better but the thing is about that is that you have to eat an enormous amount of avocado toast to save up for a deposit on a house in the southeast I mean it's probably you know yeah. roomfuls of it's av-
3: doable <laughs> though and I'm up for the challenge so <laughs> I think I could do it
1: is there a way to tackle this kind of widening uh wealth gap inequality that has been exacerbated by the boomers perfectly rational behavior without it sort of being branded as here comes you know the Corbyn left to take away all your money
3: I think that surely is possible. I can't tell you the policies that would specifically do it. But I ultimately don't think that a lot of this stuff is fundamentally economic. It has economic effects and there are economic policies like the pension lock that flow from it. But I think mostly, ultimately, this stuff is cultural. Yeah. Like even see, like someone said it the other day, like on another podcast. I know that's shocking, but other podcasts <laughs> exist. The, the Wittertainment Film Review podcast on the BBC. It's very, good it was, it's very, very good indeed. And someone was sat in the audience and they just watched 1917. They said, like, this, this bloke in his 60s at the end of it stood up and went, those bloody snowflakes place they wouldn't be able to sit through that now and, and sort of her response was like how is it possible that you have just watched this film and that yeah. is your that's instinctive your reaction yeah. on what just took place but actually that seemed to speak to some kind of, kind of emotional cultural thing rather than an yeah you but don't
0: watch. you think that's a really mm. interesting point because I think that boomer generation their parents f- were heroes right they yeah. took part in the mm. in World War 2 which is as far as Britain has a national myth is the time that we were ultimately incredibly heroic and that as a teenager must be incredibly hard I mean their, their youth revolution they must have grown up feeling sort of faintly inadequate and being huh. made to feel faintly inadequate about the fact they hadn't served in a war. They never proved themselves, which is why I think that you do see that Nigel Farage sort of like, yeah, kids today couldn't storm mm-hmm. the beaches in Normandy. And you were like, I don't think you could because you spoke about 60 a day. <laughs> yeah.
1: I don't think you make it out of the back of the boat. And Mark François <laughs> and his watercolors of Spitfires yeah. and all this
3: kind of right, thing. Right, but it's it so, is that kind of yeah. mythology.
0: And I think it's a part of it does come from a feeling of like, I've never been tested like my parents were.
3: Mm. Yeah even then they. they didn't have Vietnam here. I guess that's the other sort of crucial
2: part. Of there really has been no conflict. Well, I mean, my, my sense is that, you know, just like anyone else, that if people are comfortable, they want to try and hold on to that. And the only way out of this is to find a way to make it easier for the millennials and others who are trying to make it, particularly in on the housing ladder, in a way that doesn't let boomers feel they've been ripped off. And I don't know whether that's something to do with planning laws or something else, you know. But it, ultimately, there's got to be a way that you can get boomers downshifting out of their big empty houses. It just seems to me there's an absence of the idea that, like, you are the
1: custodian of your society for your kids and their kids and possibly the wider society that those kids will require to live in.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, part of it might be a slightly respect thing. I mean, picking up on Helen's point earlier about that generation, they, they didn't fight a war, and I imagine, I mean, I... I I can really understand that 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 would probably be quite difficult when your your, your parents' generation were completely affected by it. But I think there is this thing. I mean, I think we all sheepishly... uh, I mean, my my parents are older than the boomers, but you sheepishly ring up your parents when you have one of those complex tasks that only daddy can do. And so, and maybe we just need to show a bit more respect that, you know, there are they still have something to offer and they're not just a sort of ludicrous people uh, writing in, in copperplate handwriting. I've, I've fixed so many Wi-Fi routers, I feel that I've done my part. Yeah, yeah. It's an, it's made
1: a, it. It absolutely is. A, it's a relationship if I have to equals. show
3: anyone how to use something on an Apple device ever again, then yeah. that, that's it. It's game over. But the thing is, you don't have to use Eager after you fix an Apple device,
1: do you? So it doesn't count. It's not real. I'm There's sure. no spirit level involved. There's no spirit level yeah. involved. So in America, generations x us the good ones we're going to outnumber boomers in 2028 according to the u.s census bureau and millennials actually already outnumber boomers huh. so clearly it's the wealth not the numbers that are doing it. but are is this is this a problem that's going to solve itself demographically shall we say delicately
2: well i i'm a bit suspicious about that because obviously the, um, western societies are getting quite good at allowing rich people to pass their wealth on directly Mm -hmm. to their kids. So I think you will have this sort of apartheid. If If your parents were wealthy boomers, you're made... And if not, you know, you're you're a part of this sort of endless renting generation and, and something needs to be done to sort that out.
0: Totally. And also it depends what your parents die of and how many years of care they need before they do it. And this is the thing is you both have a, a concentration of wealth. You say Paul Johnson, the IFS talks about the, you know, the luckiest part of a lucky generation are going to and that's going to be entrenched now down the generations. But also the fact is if you're if you, you know, one of your parents kills over from a heart attack at seventy, that protects a lot more of their wealth than if they need ten or twenty years of care at the end of their life. And that's an, a completely unfair lottery system. Which all the social care proposals have tried to address with yeah. various degrees of um, well-thought well out policy, but also but all of them with an equal <gasps> reaction from people who don't want their houses taken away. Was
1: it your piece that pointed out that the 2017 election was much more determined by the dementia tax thing, putting the fear? into boomer voters than it was the youthquake we were told it was.
0: Oh, I think it massively that, that policy did because the thing is Andy Burnham came up with a proposal to integrate health and social care and George Osborne very successfully if you remember said RIP off he mm-hmm. had those tombstones and therefore everybody in politics knew this was an incredibly hot subject apart from one N. Timothy Esquire <laughs> who uh, was involved in developing the, the Tory party mem- who went you know what the thing is that, that that plan previously would have said we only want to take this much amount of your money and then all the rest of it's safe. What if we turned it round and said you can keep this much but we can take all the rest of your money let's chuck that in the manifesto see how it, <laughs> how it plays yeah on that one, on the it didn't play all that well
1: so just to wrap it up apart from demography other kind of other concrete things that government could be doing if it was so inclined which obviously this one isn't a wise government what would it be doing
0: I think Arthur's actually right that a lot of this issue is about respect because I think a lot of the anger stems from a feeling of obsolescence, a feeling of not being listened to. Um, if you think about the way that modern society is designed, that w- like we all live in London, I presume, where you it's for like a land of self checkouts and parking, you have to use a smartphone app, and all of that stuff is really quite hard for older generations who aren't maybe so internet savvy. Yeah. It is a world designed for young professionals, and I think that rubs in your face constantly that you know you are on your way out essentially. Mm. So if we had if if our public spaces and And the way that things were designed were more friendly to old people. There were more idea of social good. You know, it's one of the things about the reasons that post office closures really get to people. Because for some people, actually, you know what? That was a really big social. They wanted to get out of the house. It was basically the pub. Well, they, Yeah, exactly. That was where they saw people, they did things, they got out, they, and, yeah, and it was regular social contact. And we've not been very good about building those kind of communities that are nice for old people to live in. If you're stranded in your big house, great, but you're stranded in your big house right, and you never you can go out and actually not see someone for entire days on end, mm-hmm. that's not a great way to live. No wonder those people are quite angry and resentful about what's happened.
1: Sounds like a perfect way to live to me, but then I'm not 78. Right. <laughs> yeah, But they're not playing PlayStation, that's the problem. That's, that's problem. Really the way PlayStation it plays it. for the aged. Meanwhile, away from the issue of whether you're going to inherit your Auntie Karen's lovely little place in Polpero... There will have been quiet satisfaction in <laughs> Moscow at the weekend as one of Vladimir Putin's foreign policy dreams finally came true. Britain left the European Union, driven by a tide of populism and, of course, a good few boomer votes. Whether or not you believe that Russia interfered in British democracy, and unfortunately the Russia report still hasn't been published, which is so, so unfortunate, there's no denying that the B-word joins Donald Trump, Viktor Orban, the far-right in Germany and Austria, and the worldwide culture war as a major contribution to Putin's goal of destabilising and weakening liberal democracies. Meanwhile, Putin himself recently. Reorganize the succession of the Russian leadership to ensure that he'll exercise power for many years to come, even if it is behind the scenes. Arthur Snell knows all about this. Arthur, the far right likes to kind of scoff at the idea that populism is empowered by Putin. They like to say that it's homegrown and it presents the idea of uh, objecting to it as kind of paranoid lefty snowflake talk. What evidence is there that he is contributing to the rise of populism in the world?
2: Uh, there's loads of evidence and obviously you can get the caveats out of the way so clearly some of the stuff driving populism is nothing to do with putin whether it's deindustrialization mm. or you know uh, a difficult economic issues after the financial crisis but no there's loads of evidence the russians take a lot of active measures and not all of them work but some of them have worked spectacularly tell us a bit more about those particular active because it can't all be facebook groups there must be more than that (laughs) there's more than that well i in the end that you know the the ultimate case study is donald trump's election Mm. and uh if you have these elections which are very narrow results you know basically that came down to eighty thousand votes in three states um at that point it's possible that you can swing the result and and you know specifically in that case obviously Various things happened. One was the coordination, which we know about, thanks in part to my colleague Chris Steele, between members of Trump's campaign Mm -hmm. and senior figures in in the Russian regime. The other thing is the hacking that was done, and that sort of had two effects. One was to expose, this was hacking the Democrat computers, to expose things that Clinton didn't want exposed that were embarrassing for her campaign. But the other thing was it actually gave the Russians access to all the targeting data that the campaign had and they could then use that to target all these Facebook messages and of course Facebook messages on their own won't swing a whole campaign but if you're able to target them um, you know, 129 million Americans were reached by Facebook mes- messages put together uh, by by Russian agents. You've got the Facebook messages, you've got the wider ripples. And, of course, those messages were completely coordinated in, in the kind of rhetoric terms with what Trump himself was saying. Mm. You know, this kind of racially motivated uh, language and all the rest of it. So, you know, it was a very, very powerful campaign. I mean, it's... When you spend a lot of time on social media, as you kind of have to when
1: you're in jobs like ours, you you, you develop a sort of an almost automatic presumption that anything uh, a little bit kind of strident is probably a fake person. You know, we've all learned to spot the eight digits and the dog avatar and the love my wife, no, love my kids, hate my ex-wife, all the kind of stuff that tends to... And the, and the lack of definitive articles. You know, you can kind of, <laughs> see a lack of definite articles rather. You know, they're having great time at football. Hang on a minute, you're a bit suspicious. I mean, is this... So much of it takes place within the digital realm. Um, What's the way that that translates out into, you know, kind of into the real world, into meat space, as it were?
2: Yeah, well, I think the prize for um, for someone who's, Pushing disinformation is to get it out of that sort of weird bot with a strange set of numbers into what you might call a mainstream kind of uh, voice. Now, I mean, I've seen some very interesting work that some Swedish scientists have done, and they were looking at Rus- Russian disinformation regarding Sweden. And these things start off in very fringe places of the internet where well, no one would take it seriously. But some of these stories, sort of stories about how Sweden's become the rape capital of Europe because there are so many Muslims there. These stories, which isn't true by the way, hmm. these stories end up in the Mail Online. So at that point, it is it doesn't feel like disinformation to somebody who relies on Mail Online for their you know their news and information. So that that's how you do this, how you change people's views. Does Russia directly fund populist groups again in meat space in the real world? Yes. So uh, the ones we know about, uh, you've got the French National Front, National Rally, as it now is. And then famously, it emerged last year. There were these recordings of Matteo Salvini, the Italian who may soon be the prime minister of Italy, uh, having a discussion in Russia about funding he might get. Now, these are the ones we know. We tend to know about it when there's been a leak or an investigation. So there must be a lot more of that. And then, of course... Here in the UK, you know, our own populist movement now called the Conservative Party, (laughs) uh, they have received a lot of very generous donations from these sort of dual national Russian-British oligarchs. Uh, We don't yet know uh, the figures for the last election. I think they're due out at the end of this month uh, from the Electoral Commission. But there's a lot of money floating around. Helen, it's been said that the 2010s were the years when the far-right kind of populist entered the mainstream in the
1: 2020s are the years when we're going to start paying for it. Apart from Trump kind of claiming an economic miracle in the US and Johnson promising one here, are we seeing evidence of how populists actually perform at the boring, tedious business of actually running things?
0: Well, one of the the kind of hallmarks about populism is promising incredibly easy solutions to stuff. So it's not really about engaging with the mechanisms of government. So mm-hmm. when you're actually, turns out, usually quite crap at being in government, there's always somebody who's to blame, right? It's the Jews, it's the Muslims, it's the feminists, it's yeah. the lying press, it's, it's the whatever. Podcasts. Right, so, so that's the thing. And, and I think the <laughs> most interesting thing about the way that the Republicans have got this sewn up in the US is that their whole point is to say private enterprise is brilliant and you know government is, is useless so by getting into government and being useless they make that case very well right it's not in their yeah. interests to run smoothly to be bipartisan to try and work on stuff together so they are very obstructionist in that way
1: but also good government isn't the retail product is it the retail product is the rage and the anger and the dissatisfaction and the finger pointing on the enemies well, you know Donald Trump is not particularly interested in reforming anything
0: no and I think the interesting thing for me from watching obviously American politics much more intently since joining an American news or Organization, because you're seeing the proper engine room stuff, is actually about what. The ways that that system was built to contain people like Trump, and this was something you know the founders of America really saw Trump coming, right? And actually, there are lots of ways in which his power has been inhibited. Nonetheless, he is it is hard to underestimate what a big wrecking ball he has been through the system, just in terms mm. of the turnover of White House staff is extraordinary. The number of vacancies and stuff is extraordinary. You know, kind of think ambassadorial vacancies. I think going yeah. g- like going unfilled. It's a real lesson about what how long can you kind of keep the government clown car on the road as the door falls. Off and the mm. carburettor comes off, and actually the really interesting point will be if he gets re-elected, which I think is a very strong possibility. Yeah. Do though, you know, do, is it like austerity? Does there come to be a point where actually people do start to notice that so many bits have fallen off that the car is really struggling to keep on on the road?
1: Last year Putin popped up and declared that liberalism has become obsolete. <laughs> Touched on this. Checkmate this on show. your <laughs>
3: Yeah, mm. hasty rewrite required. He's
0: not going to blurb it now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, indeed. I mean, I'll keep on sending him the letters, but yeah, I'm yeah. becoming less, less enthusiastic don't, about don't his reply. Visit, don't visit for the opening. Don't, don't, don't go right. cut any ropes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't. He, the thing is, he doesn't do anything in government to, to, to really uh, put forward an alternative vision. What he manages to do extremely effectively is to sort of degrade the basic operational mechanisms of liberalism. And he does that through disinformation, through the capacity to know truth and to reason. And that process, I mean, that's always been there in Russia. I mean, the word disinformation was basically invented by Stalin and made to sound like a Western word. So even in the formulation of the word, there was, there was fake news in there as it was. But it really came into its own really during Ukraine, so the Ukraine crisis in sort of early 2014, where you get these, they're called little green men, coming into the Crimea, where people were like, who the fuck is this? It's like he's dressed like he's with the Russian army. He's not wearing the insignia. He's not clearly from Russia. And within a matter of weeks, Crimea had been annexed. But Russia had never formally entered the area. All that time, Putin was saying, "But fucking nothing to do with me, mate. Like, I don't have anything to do with this. And then it elevated really... After the MH17 crisis, do you remember when yeah. um, sort of pro sort of Kremlin forces in eastern Ukraine shot down that airplane? And then suddenly the, the social media operation really came online hard, especially with sort of troll armies pumping this shit out. And what was their aim? Their aim wasn't really to convince the international community that that missile, that that service to missile, wasn't from Russia. The aim really was just to flood the zone with shit. As Steve Bannon, Bannon says, puts it, yes. just flood it with all this angry, trolly, misleading shit. And so eventually you just think, well, I don't know what the fucking truth is. You look at the ma- the most effective face, uh, Russian disinformation Instagram post, okay, during 2015 to 2017, in the US, is about eight female legs. And it starts with a very white leg and it ends with a very black leg. And it says, all these skin tones are natural, get over it. Basically, have pride in, in blackness. It was this... This was a targeted, obviously, at the African-American communities. African-American communities were basically brought into these groups and then told, don't vote, don't trust the system. Conservative voters were brought into those groups and going, vote for Trump. Now, on that basis, you would never fucking have any idea that that post was coming from a disinformation campaign, least of all that it had some kind of really specific political intent to it. Mm. So again, you know, just the general cultural shit, sort of boring, mule and crap, and all of that stuff doesn't look like it's explicitly to do with the campaign that it is. So the effect of it, the the sick part of this is, even by saying it, even by the words that I'm saying right now, you start to lose faith in the information that you see in front of you on anything. And by virtue of that, you lose the ability to properly reason about politics in a non-emotive, non-tribal way. And that right there is the primary function of how this operates. Mm.
1: Arthur, the succession. Putin carried out a surprise reorganisation of the Russian government in January. He will possibly step down as president in 24. But well, as Helen has pointed out, he will then put on a kind of those rubber masks that uh, <laughs> he used to use in The Saint or The Master on Doctor Who and he'll go, I am Vladimir Putin. And you're like, what is, you know, are the constitution is going to change so that he's still able to exercise power. Is there any sight of the end of the Putin era? or And, and do what, Do we have any idea what's going to happen after that? What What's the kind of... The, the sort of posture of the
2: of the elites within the russian system yeah well i obviously um you know he's chairman of the state council i think is that is the next title which will allow him to exercise all the powers that he currently exercises uh you know he's still by any western politician's standards amazingly popular but he's much less popular than he was a few years ago so you know it can't last forever there will be some point at which it is no longer possible for him to command that level that sort of iron grip but i i i think if you look at values you know v- and values that most russians hold are very close to those that Vladimir Putin appears to hold. Mm-hmm. You know, liberalism hasn't taken off in Russia uh, and people are socially very conservative. Uh, there's a widespread belief that a authoritarian and strong state is necessary. Uh, and, you know, for reasons that are to do with history and, and all kinds of other things, Russia has uh, a fear of encirclement and invasion and, you know, aggression by other powers and therefore behaves in a way that, that sort of a, a responds to that. So I, I think a world without Vladimir Putin is not a world in which a liberal democrat is, is running Russia by any means mm. I mean he's presented himself in populist
1: mean, uh, terms anyway hasn't he he's always, you know wrestling bears and kind of you know plunging through frozen rivers on a horse
2: indeed and, and you know he's a real man and obviously
1: people <laughs> like that Finally, good news for avid time wasters, far-right personality and graduate of the Apprentice School of Excellence Katie Hopkins has finally been suspended from Twitter after years of apparently deliberately offensive posting. It came after Rachel Riley, the countdown presenter and campaigner against anti-Semitism and extremism, forced a meeting with Twitter to discuss the platform's hosting of extremism. Hopkins had used the platform to imply that paedophilia is central to Islam, called for a final solution after the bombing of an Ariana Grande concert in Manchester, and to claim that the chief rabbi was ultimately responsible for the anti-Semitic attacks on a Pittsburgh synagogue Helen you've had loads of fun on Twitter with candid criticism from the guy with the eight digit name and the dog um (laughs) What does it say that it requires somebody like Rachel Riley to get involved to make this a personal crusade to get it addressed? Because the companies really have shown very little interest.
0: I think the companies, both because they're American companies and they come out of a particular libertarian sort of uh, utopian Californian ideology, right, that you just let a thousand flowers boom. And also mostly set up, let's be honest, by well-to-do white college-educated men, right, not people Mm. from traditionally oppressed minority groups. That has given them a particular outlook where they have been, you know, Reddit used to describe themselves as free speech absolutists. That has curdled quite a lot as people have realised that if you do allow a completely untrammeled free speech, actually, as in the case of Russia, paid speech quite often triumphs quite a lot because people pour huge amounts of, of money into it. But... For me, Katie Hopkins just crossed the line of no platforming, which is advocating violence. Mm. She's entitled entirely to hold her despicable racist views. What she can't and shouldn't be allowed to do on, uh, you know, a, a, and, a, and a huge platform like that is advocate for for violence against other groups. Let's
1: mm. get a big wet liberally and dunce. Now. <laughs> Is is uh, is no platforming and silencing people
3: like Katie Hopkins? Uh, is it, it may be practically desirable? Is it morally desirable? Yeah. So I mean, the, the, the benchmark you just set is the right one, right? Incitement to violence. But like John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor, when they wrote about this, put put a, a caveat on that, which is uh, their example was um, a mob outside of someone's house. No, like, that's the point where we've got to. It's not just that they're inciting violence. It's that you're at a social point where it's actually, you know, credible that it might be about to take place. And I thought, especially with Katie Hopkins, do you remember when she wrote that piece talking about gunning down migrant boats yeah. um, in, I think, the mail? I the can't sun. It I the think sun. It was the Sun. I think it was, yeah. Um, and it was, and, and I just remember thinking, "You're you're right on the fucking line now." You know what I mean? Because ultimately, as a as a piece of writing, I think it satisfies the incitement threshold. In terms of where we were socially at that time, it didn't feel like there was sort of big crowds waiting for the boats waiting to attack them. As she went on, and especially as she kept on using the sort of terrorist things, you just thought, I think, kind of, you're, you're now stepping over the line. It doesn't surprise me. That's the easier part to do. I mean, it's still complicated, but that's the easier part to deal with liberalism. The bit that's harder, I think, is trying to work out when someone is being silenced. So what you'll find often is, especially people that aren't white, especially people that aren't men, will have this attack on them that comes from the alt-right. I mean, Milo was that was the sort of par excellence of how to do this stuff. I mean, he would whip people up, he would charge them with the most unspeakable things, you know, about their appearance and blah, blah, blah. And when someone sits through that day after day they are essentially being silenced and when we talk about free speech because no, no emotionally normal person is going to wake up switch on their computer how if they're a journalist how do they have you know how can they operate when that's the kind of abuse that they get so when we talk about free speech you've got to have a more complex view which is also what is happening to the free speech of the people who are targeted by yeah. these absolute fuck nuts and that is the bit that the sort of libertarian side never really seemed to grasp the net of the actual words speech. wasn't that these Absolute fuck, that's yeah. He d- he was huge on that word, particularly like he would use it all the time. Arthur, you have worked in extremism,
1: not personally being an extremist, but work on extremism, <laughs> right? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, amazing reveals on the podcast. There, does this kind of daily trolling matter? Does it set the temperature for the kind of people who are susceptible to going over that line? Because I mean, my suspicion is that you know your 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 putative jihadi is probably not on Twitter. It's too public. He's on. WhatsApp and Snapchat and Club Penguin and all these places.
2: Well, right, I mean I think um you know certainly if you for example look at the the Christchurch mosque uh, massacre that happened and that was obviously a sort of far right kind of white nationalist I think there was 4chan and then 8chan so these very kind of fringe completely extreme sort of corners of the internet which are you know which are never going to be uh, governed spaces because if if it will get shut down and then they move on somewhere else. Um, but I think it, it, that doesn't mean then that we shouldn't be looking at, at, at the hate speech on Twitter because a lot of this is about an enabling environment. We all know that things are now said by mainstream politicians that we wouldn't have believed would have been said 10 years ago. And mm-hmm. I think that's the problem that we've shifted uh, you know, everybody's shifted in a certain direction, and 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 that is enabled by these these utility uh, platforms such as Facebook and Twitter.
0: I mean, Twitter's rationale for not banning. Donald Trump, even when he actually yeah. is crossing the line of threatening violence with people, is that he's, he's newsworthy and they've therefore got to do it. But I think which I think is m- a massive problem, right? Because he is essentially now avoiding scrutiny, avoiding sitting down to sit down interviews with anyone who might be slightly hard, because he can issue a press release through Twitter and know that journalists will then, ha- re- you know, faithfully report it. Will then yeah. report it,
1: and all the mockery of the spelling mistakes matters not at all, does it? Because the message has still gone through. No, The Apprentice is the worst thing that's ever happened to the culture, <laughs> isn't it? It's got <laughs> Casey Hopkins. Michelle Dewberry is nowhere nearly as odious but she's kind of an annoying. And the President of the United States,
3: brought to you by The Apprentice. And some American journalists have sort of have sort of said to me, you know, actually he probably learned quite a lot of his tricks on The Apprentice. Like he used to they would sort of say when you talk to people that were behind the cameras, he would be very aware of the responses to various phrases to what was working and that was that, what he then brought to the campaign trail and for instance when you saw his response to the word fence or build a fence, very very strong within six months that had migrated to war and it was just that receptive idea to Towards your audience, that some American journalists think he picked up on the set of The Apprentice. So, in a quite literal way, it is yeah. devil spawn television. You could totally see the Brexit Party slate like walking into that room with Sir Alan
1: you in their <laughs> horrible kind of slick back hair and this <laughs> stupid "I'm a character to check suits." I provide solutions, Sir Alan. God. Anyway, don't forget, everyone, follow us on Twitter at Bunker. Right, we've come to the end of the show. And before we go, every bunker needs an emergency exit. So we're asking the panel for their escape routes for when they're kettled in the world of politics. What movies, books, events, music or miscellaneous will they be using as spiritual sustenance? Helen Lewis, what's your escape route right now?
0: Uh, well, I was ill at the end of last week. So I <laughs> confined myself to my sofa and watched all the episodes of The Goop Lab
1: oh god you oh, didn't Fuck me. that thing is a war crime against the mind
0: <laughs> why did you
1: do that what was your favourite one was it I can see your aura or was it the masturbation club
0: oh no I actually I was, uh, the one that was about sex education was, was fine right it was actually, actually pretty it evidence. wasn't that bad that it was one. pretty evidence based yes. I covered some of the same material that I do in my book Difficult Women out soon um, <laughs> but uh, the one that I most enjoyed was the one about mediums and talking to yes. the dead because there's a priceless bit where Gwyneth Paltrow is sitting on the sofa with her chief content officer uh, and she said things like, I used to go to mediums, but of course... They used to say things you could just find on Google. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, yeah, that is a bit of a problem if you are going to start doing it. Going to be <laughs> And They're like, I am just getting. just used to date a guy with like blonde, blonde hair. I am getting blonde hair. Yeah. I am getting consciously uncoupled. Mm. It's amazing the hit rate. I am seeing more. yellow. I
1: am seeing yellow. I don't know why. The, the, the great bit of that as well. <laughs> so one,
0: you've watched them all as well. Clearly. I had to, for
1: our companion podcast, Big Mouth, available now on all your favourite platforms. We right. reviewed it like uh, you a of ago. You had to watch. Them. I had to. You watch ate it.
3: them down like I like just, cheer pudding. Also, I, to be clear, he is the one that decides what appears on that body. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> well the great bit in the medium one is they've got a skeptical member of staff no, who says her. i don't believe this so the medium's going i'm seeing a donkey i'm <laughs> yeah. seeing a beach and the woman in front of the camera's going no no not to do with me Don't you're talking about and you hear this squeal from behind the camera and then another member of go- staff goes oh my god my oh, granddad Dad went to Lindsay mexico Lindsay once they've got donkey don- yeah you're reading me and i just thought oh, god help you all and our society it was a brilliant
0: like unwittingly a brilliant demonstration of how mediumship works right and cold reading, both where you keep just throwing things out to people until they come back to you. Yeah. And also the other half, I think, of why mediums work, which is that I think any British person sitting there just, of the five minutes of this person getting something from your mother's <laughs> side. But you're going, yes, yes, my mother's oh, like, side. Yeah, yeah, she, she, yeah, she uh, was yeah. a trumpet She loved artist. donkeys. Yes. She was a donkey. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> it was just so
1: awkward. Yeah, I saw Shrek once, maybe that's it, yeah. <laughs> Arthur, how are you escaping from the uh, boiling pressure cooker of politics at the moment? Uh,
2: well, I am... Um I, I, I'm very lucky. I live in the countryside and uh, at this time of year when it's a bit cold, I chop a lot of firewood. So wow. my, my oh, advice to rugged. everyone is get a chainsaw it's and very get an axe. Putin. That's very Putin. a nap. It, it's a bit Putin, but it's extremely therapeutic. I very think, relaxing. I think you need to be Mr
1: February on the bunker <laughs> calendar chopping <laughs> in a snowy environment and waving an axe. <laughs> yeah. Ian's on the next one fixing you the Mr. Norton Mr January is
0: Andrew getting his aura red.
3: That's <laughs> no, me just sitting there with a bucket of lem and weeping. <laughs> <laughs> John, how are you keeping the world of base? So I slagged off Netflix uh, last week, and I'm going to be a little bit nicer about it this week, because it did not make, but did feature a programme called The Good Place, and it was the last episode this week, which, I mean, b- broke me in a way that I don't think I've been broken by a last episode since, and I say this um, advisedly, Six Feet Under, which I think is probably the one of the best final episodes, maybe the best final episode, and certainly the most emotional final episode I'd seen. And actually structurally, they're, they're kind of saying, they really commit to the idea that this is an ending. It was just fundamentally concerned with how to be a good person. And it felt so nice to have a programme that had that, and had a sort of idea at the end of it, but Helen's looking that's at me very, very sceptically, like by the way. That's all about <laughs>
0: optimising <laughs>
3: yeah. Fair enough. Um, It just had this sort of theory. I mean, the theory that ultimately the idea I committed to all the way through was act as if your behaviour will become a moral law, which is A, the best possible thought you can give to any series of human beings. But B, you're just like, how the... Fuck, did this glossy American comedy have the sheer balls to just be like, we're basically going to do a philosophical treatise on how to be a good person and what the meaning of life is. So by the time it ended, you're like, fair enough. That was fucking fantastic.
1: Oh, so which philosopher would uh, take the box in this? Was it Immanuel Kant? Kant, it is yeah. Kant. Yeah, All right. yeah. Amazing. Well, my escape route turned out to be a blind alley because I thought I'll read a big, thick book that's completely a bit beyond the world of politics. A book, uh, we mentioned it, we were talking about it before we started recording, called uh, by Neil Stevenson, called Fall or dodging hell and what happens is a billionaire games developer uh, accidentally dies on the operating table in a routine medical procedure and his will uh, insists that his brain is preserved is scanned and preserved and he's resurrected within a digital environment but the bit that turned out to be the blind alley that drove me right back into modern politics is right in the middle of the book there is a section where um uh, extremists and and uh, hackers fake a nuclear attack on an american town it's subsequently very very clear that it hasn't been destroyed at all but nobody wants to believe that they want to believe that the nuclear attack was real <laughs> and decades later people are still saying remember Moab remember the terrible nuclear attack in Moab and people are standing there taking pictures in the middle of Moab saying I'm here it's here it still exists here I am right now no it doesn't so the idea that like digital lies can become so much more powerful than truth I found profoundly depressing but luckily it's only in the middle of the book and it got a lot more cheery towards the end
0: yeah, when I was younger I used to read those books about living forever and I used to think wow amazing and now I think god that sounds tiring <laughs> I wonder yeah. if it goes back up again when you're 70, you become much more like lively, interested Well, they really. do say
1: that you are at your most miserable in your late 40s, early 50s, and then you become... Because you don't care anymore it's not after quite,
0: that. It's not, I'm not even there yet. It's, just, it's all downslope. Well, slow, let me
1: tell there. you from where, from where I'm standing. Anyway, that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you to our panel, Ian Dunt, Helen Lewis and Arthur Snell. We'll be back next week. Subscribe to The Bunker on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Bunker underscore pod. And we're now on Facebook too, so join us in sharing your innermost private thoughts with Mark Zuckerberg. Back next week. (laughs) Try not to get radicalised before then.
2: The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Ian Dunt, Helen Lewis and Arthur Snell. Audio production was by me, Alex Rees. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.